please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 5, looking at verses 12 through 42 this morning. We look again this morning at the, um, the opposition that the early church received from the religious establishment in Jerusalem, from the, the Sanhedrin, uh, the folks who were in charge of the temple and the, the Jewish people underneath uh, Rome's authority. A couple weeks ago, we looked at a similar passage from Acts chapter 4, where the, um, the Jewish leaders, Sanhedrin, first arrested Peter and John. Um, because they had healed a man who was lame, uh, you know, had bad legs, <laughs> bad feet, lame, and uh, healed him, and he was springing up and dancing and, and leaping for joy, and uh, they, were, they were saying that uh, this man was healed because of Jesus, and they were teaching people about Jesus and about the resurrection of Jesus, and the Jewish leaders didn't like that. They, they arrested them. They commanded them not to teach the people about Jesus. We talked about um, how, like the apostles, we can find courage uh, in God's sovereignty to proclaim the gospel with boldness in the face of such opposition. It actually seems like a lot of Luke's record uh, in the book of Acts, his record of the first century church, deals with the suffering of the apostles for the sake of the gospel. Uh, deals with the, the violent opposition that they encountered wherever they went, really, on their missionary journeys. Um, in fact, it seems like a lot of the New Testament is devoted to helping Christians endure the conflict that they have with this world. This morning's passage is kind of like um, the Sanhedrin versus the early church, part two. Um, and it's definitely an escalation of the conflict that we saw in chapter four. We'll look briefly at the whole passage. Um, it's actually pretty long. Um, but we're only going to spend about half our time looking at most of it and then uh, really going to focus mainly on the last few verses and uh, talk about how Christians can actually rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, a lot of people would take a statement like that to be a sign of psychosis. <laughs> um, I would ask you to reserve your judgments about my mental health for the next 20-25 minutes or so. Um, well, let's pray and then we'll read our text. Father, our souls yearn for you, we long for you, our souls cling to you, and we want to be close to you. You are our greatest desire, and, uh, and so we need your help. We need you to come to us, we need you to visit, visit us by your spirit and by your word to draw us close to you, uh, keep our hearts and our souls and our minds uh, fixed on you as we read this uh, passage of your word as we think about what your Bible has to say about uh, our suffering and what our response should be to it. I pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, 
that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in a council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So at the beginning of our passage, verses 12 uh, through 16, we have one of Luke's summary paragraphs of how Jesus was building his church by the power of his spirit at work through the apostles, through their teaching and through their miracles. And last week we read that um, everyone was struck by 
the fear of the Lord because of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And that might explain what we see in verse 13 that says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. People were afraid um, to join the church casually or half-heartedly, because look what happened when you're casual or half-hearted about your faith. But that didn't stop multitudes of men and women from believing the gospel and being added to Jesus, joining the church. People were coming uh, now, not just from Jerusalem, but from all the surrounding villages to be healed by the apostles. We need to remember that the miracles of healing and the miracles of exorcism that they're able to perform uh, were a testimony to the gospel, right? To the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the hope of the future glorious resurrection that's promised to all believers. So God was causing his church to grow fantastically, and the church's influence, as you can imagine, threatened the existing um, religious establishment. It says in verse 17 that the high priests and all the Sadducees who were in power uh, were filled with jealousy, right, so that they arrested and uh, put into public prison the apostles. And that night, while they're in prison, something happened that unfortunately uh, we can't all expect or take for granted would happen. Uh, should we be put into prison, um, an angel of the Lord broke him out. Right. Now, um, when he did that, I, I might have been hoping for the angel to say something like this. You guys should probably leave town because um, the authorities are soon going to discover your escape and they're going to give chase. Right. The angel commanded them to head right back into the temple and keep doing what had already gotten them arrested twice. Namely, preaching the gospel. God is concerned with the proclamation of his son's gospel. So the apostles return to the temple in the morning, and here we see maybe a bit of Luke's humor, right? The Sanhedrin get together, they call for the prisoners, but nobody can explain what's happened to them. The prison was locked. The guards were there, but the apostles were gone. They were greatly perplexed. Until someone came and said, hey, uh, guys, you know those prisoners, they're, um, they're back in the temple <laughs> teaching people about Jesus again. So the Sanhedrin sent for them again, gingerly, mind you, because um, the apostles were becoming very popular with the people. The religious establishment was starting to fear now, not just for their positions of authority and power among the people, They were starting to fear for their lives. It says in verse 26, they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They were becoming sensitive to the appearance of police brutality. So they brought the apostles in gently for questioning again and raised two accusations against them. First, he said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled with Jerusalem with your teaching. In response to this, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Indeed, you strictly and clearly charged us to stop preaching the gospel, but God told us to keep preaching the gospel. Very briefly, here's an instance of civil disobedience, even uh, 
ecclesiastical disobedience. Christian civil disobedience comes when earthly authorities are at odds with the divine authority of God's revelation. Sometimes, in order to obey God, Christians have to disobey other authorities. Whenever this happens in the book of Acts or in the whole New Testament, really, we never see the Christians resisting arrest. They're never responding with violence. And they're never seeking to escape the penalties that the authorities would impose on their actions. So the apostles acknowledged the Sanhedrin's power to arrest them and put them on trial. Uh, they conceded to the charges that were brought against them, and they were going to accept the punishment of the court. It's because we must obey God rather than men. Right? Secondly, the Sanhedrin wanted to charge the apostles basically with uh, false accusations. Um, the apostles... They wanted to charge the apostles for falsely accusing them of the murder of Jesus. They said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right? It seems that they had forgotten already what had happened just a few months before when they had brought Jesus to Pilate to get him executed. And they had stirred up all the people to call for his crucifixion, to call for the release of the, the murderer Barabbas. Pilate, you remember, wanted to let Jesus go free. Uh, but all the people that the Sanhedrin had riled up shouted, his blood be on us and on our children. Ouch. So yes, um, Peter reiterated without pulling any punches. He killed Jesus. And God raised him from the dead. And set him over every other authority. Including you. As the prince and savior. The leader. The ruler and savior of his people. So repent and turn away from your rebellion against God's Messiah and receive forgiveness at his hand. Peter offers salvation even to the very ones who had killed Jesus. The apostles aren't retaliating against the injustice of the Sanhedrin. They're offering them the free grace of the gospel over and over again. But in offering the Sanhedrin mercy, and forgiveness, they're also implicitly undermining their authority and uh, undermining their, their righteousness. Right? Jesus is our rightful leader, not you. He is the one to whom we must all answer. And if you want to be right with God, you need to get on your knees and ask forgiveness from the one that you killed in order to maintain your position of power. Verse 33, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were enraged, they were torn through, they were infuriated, and wanted to kill them. <clears throat> David Peterson, commentator, says this, that the truthfulness of the apostolic claims about Jesus was not even considered at this point, since the Sadducees were more concerned about maintaining their reputation and leadership among the people. But instead of the apostles all being martyred right then and there, the respected Gamaliel stood up and asked for executive session. The apostles are ushered out, and he gives his speech. He basically offers up popular politics cloaked in bad theology as a reason for a hands-off policy. 
when it comes to these apostles. It might seem like his argument is uh, theologically deep, right? But if he were actually concerned with spiritual things, he probably would have called for an honest evaluation of the apostles' claims, for an honest self-examination of their motives, right? And actually, what he offers is a, a fatalistic view of God's sovereignty. It's a bad view of the way that we engage with what God is doing in the world. And it really does seem like he's just subtly reminding them all of the fear of the masses, right? Who seem to like Christianity at this particular moment. Gamaliel's pupil, Saul of Tarsus, probably saw it a little more clearly. If a movement is wrong, you systematically stamp it out. Obviously, they didn't really care to be found on God's side. Because in spite of the consideration that the apostles might be right, um, they brought them in and they gave them 39 lashes for no official reason. This punishment in itself was known to be uh, potentially lethal. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them, they flayed them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been released? No. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. <clears throat> no, this is just crazy, right? I mean, rejoicing as a response to suffering, it's unnatural, it's, it's bizarre. Um, social scientists actually label this kind of thing uh, as psychopathic. Um, it's masochistic, it's irrational to de derive some kind of morbid pleasure from suffering from pain itself. Um, that's not exactly what's happening here. John Calvin wrote, You must not think that the apostles were so senseless, but that they felt some shame and did also lament when they felt the punishment. For they had not quite put off nature, but when they considered the cause, then joy got the upper hand. So what was it about their suffering um, that the apostles considered cause for rejoicing? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the dishonor of the name, the name of Jesus, the name of their Savior and their Lord. Uh, and I'll be honest, it's, it's one of the hardest things for me to believe and to remember that suffering for Jesus is such a privilege, it's such an honor, that it's cause for rejoicing. I mean, in one sense, I think we all know instinctively that suffering doesn't belong Suffering shouldn't be, and one day, God will erase suffering from the cosmos altogether. But right now, God has ordained that suffering will actually characterize the lives of his people. And God has ordained that suffering is actually the means by which his kingdom advances in this world. 
Usually when we think of promises in the Bible, we think of pleasant ones like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Or, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that you can come and be with me where I am in heaven. But there are a host of perhaps less pleasant promises. Like, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Or anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, uh, in case you thought that becoming a Christian would make your life easier, um, let me tell you, this is what you're getting yourself into. Life actually, in a sense, becomes more difficult when you choose to follow Jesus. Because the way of Jesus, the way of this life, is the way of the cross. Jesus chose the way of the cross first. The king of glory became the man of sorrows. Jesus chose suffering. Even death on a cross as the greatest display of love that the world has ever known. In Hebrews chapter 2 says Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It says that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In God's plan, there is no glory, there is no honor, there is no true and everlasting life apart from suffering. And God knows that better than anyone. The father suffered the loss of his son, and the son suffered the loss of all things, even his own life. But why? Why did he do it? Because he's masochistic? He likes pain? No. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised the shame. He despised the dishonor. He put up with the suffering. And he did it for the joy of saving his people from eternal death. And he calls us to follow him through suffering into glory. He doesn't call us to revel in the pain of suffering, but to endure it. And to endure it with joy because of the joy that's set before us. In Luke 9, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Four, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You're called to lay down your life like Jesus did in order to truly gain it. Right? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We find blessing 
when we suffer on account of the Son of Man. Our reward in heaven is great. Philippians 1, Paul says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. It's a privilege granted by God. Why? Philippians 3, Paul wrote that he desperately wanted to know him, know Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The goal is to know Jesus intimately, to have a true relationship of love with the Son of God. To be lifted up in the everlasting resurrection like Jesus was. That's the goal. And God has ordained that the means to attaining this is to participate, is to share, it's to fellowship in Jesus' own sufferings. In his humiliation, in his dishonor, in his pain, even in his death. We need to be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 63, which we read earlier this morning... Our souls thirst for God. Our souls cling to God. Our souls will be satisfied with God's steadfast love, which is better than life. And that comes in the context of the psalm. Um, when there are those who seek to destroy us. And when we can say that, then... Um, then we'll rejoice in our sufferings because we know that by them, God is fitting us for heaven. He's fitting us for his presence. He's fitting us for eternity in communion with him. And we can only rejoice in our sufferings as Christians because the resurrection is true. Right? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people to be most pitied. If there's no resurrection, you should just eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Pursue ordinary pleasures. Try to avoid suffering as much as possible. And honestly, that sounds like it describes my life. Just trying to live a simple, comfortable Pain-free, conflict-free existence. That's exactly what you'd do if you didn't believe in the resurrection. The normal life of this world is to flee from suffering by any means. But if the resurrection is true, that changes everything. Because the resurrection, by definition, only comes after death. It only comes after suffering. God is not calling us to live lives of pleasure and ease and comfort. He's calling us to pick up our crosses and to find joy in it. Because that's where we find a true relationship with Jesus. Right? And maybe that means you become a missionary and go to a difficult, dangerous place. But even if you don't move to the mission field, if you want to follow Jesus, you are called to suffer for his sake. God is calling you to live for the same message of grace that the apostles and countless missionaries have suffered for, that the white-robed army of martyrs 
have died for. John Piper says, All suffering that comes in the path of obedience to the call of God, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, is suffering with Christ and for Christ. All these types of suffering threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience. Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance in obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ. Suffering for Christ can look like enduring physical violence on the mission field. That's maybe the clearest example. Suffering for Christ can look like leaning on God's sovereignty through a car accident or when your barn burns down. Suffering for Christ can look like lowering your standard of living so that you become more generous to people who are in need. Suffering for Christ can look like losing your boyfriend or your girlfriend because you wanted to honor God with your body. It's suffering with Christ when clinging to Christ is what gets you through it. And it's suffering for Christ when our allegiance to him proves his goodness and his power and his worth. Nothing testifies to the preciousness of Christ more clearly than the believer's willingness to lose everything for him. Nothing preaches the gospel louder than the suffering of Christians. John Piper says, suffering does not accompany our witness, it is the capstone of our witness. When we suffer and our hearts are filled with the grace of Jesus, then others can see his surpassing value in our lives. What kind of Savior is it that captivates and satisfies our hearts through the worst moments of our lives? What kind of Savior enables us to suffer with patience? What kind of Savior enables us to suffer with love and forgiveness for those who are doing us wrong? What kind of Savior enables us to suffer the loss of all things with the sure hope of eternal glory? How many accounts are there throughout history of cruel pagans witnessing the courageous suffering of gentle Christians finding faith in that very moment. Tertullian, one of the church fathers around the, the year 200 AD, said this in a defense he was giving to, to leaders in the Roman Empire, a defense of Christianity. Crucify, torture, condemn, annihilate us. We spring up in greater numbers the more we're mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. We give thanks to your judgments. <clears throat> Close with 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. Amen. Let's pray.
God, we do put our faith in you. We trust that you orchestrate everything in our lives, everything in this world, for your glory and even for our good, even when that makes no sense to us at all that we would suffer. We pray that you would grant us the faith that when we suffer, whatever form our suffering takes, whatever form our pain comes to us in, that we would suffer with Christ, that we would cling to Christ, that we would suffer for Christ, that Christ would be exalted and honored with our lips and in our lives as we face those difficult moments that um, unfortunately so frequently come upon us. We pray that you would bear us up through all of our suffering, that you would receive the glory as the one who sustains us, the one who gives us joy and good cheer, the one who lifts up our hearts out of the mire, the one who defends us, uh, who defends our spirits and defends our eternity, even if people are successful in persecuting us and taking away our lives. Uh, we know that you are watching over us and we submit ourselves to your love. We pray that you would help us to suffer for the glory of your name with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.